For the week of September 20th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we talk with Rial Johnson. He is the campaign director for Initiative 940, the de-escalation initiative aimed at lowering incidents of police shootings, profilings, and harassment. And then we talk with activist Kamau Shega about his experiences as a DACA recipient in America. All this, plus our dose of good news and our call to action. Rial Johnson joins us now. He is the campaign director for Initiative 940, which is being called De-Escalate Washington. Rial Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's begin by talking about what I-940 would require. First and foremost, it is aimed at police forces across the state and would require more training on de-escalation for police officers. Tell us a little bit about what that means specifically. Well, as of now, police officers are only required to do eight hours of crisis intervention training. And if you talk to any person in the mental health uh, in, in, in field, there, they will tell you that that you know that's just not su- sufficient mm. to handle people with you know experiencing crisis, you know mental health crisis. Um, this is to help police you know deal better with uh, people that are in mental crises. Oh, about 50% of people that are shot by police are you know are suffering from mental health issues. So um, we have, if you've noticed, that we've made a lot of you know progress and evolution on mental health analysis and behavioral analysis. So um, the police training just hasn't been able to catch up with that. Um, so we want to be able to equip police with the right tools in order to be able to handle these situations so things get diffused and, and, and solved versus you know ending in extreme violence. Right. There's also something called a good faith standard for officer criminal liability. And this, I am guessing, is in response to the many cases across the nation of police shooting unarmed black citizens and largely going unpunished except for just a couple of cases. How is good faith specifically defined? by this initiative? Um, it, it creates what's called both an objective and, and sub, subjective standard. So um, the officer has to show that he truly believed he was operating in good faith of the law. And of course, and then it has to be a, another subjective standard of a re, what a reasonable officer would believe was how he was acting in, in good faith of the law. So, And how does that differ from what is currently on the books? Right now, we have uh, the prosecution has to be able to prove that the officer was not acting uh, in good faith of the law, which um, or that the officer that has to prove that the officer did not believe he was acting, he or she was acting in good faith of the law, which is impossible to prove because the person, you know, unless the officer has full confession that they said, I didn't care what the law was. Right. So it's enormously subjective, really, and it's up to interpretation. Um, You know, uh, there are a couple other things that really struck me about this initiative. One is that it brings in members of the specific community in which the officers are working to help develop the curriculum for the police officers training. Is this going to be on a community by community basis across the state or is it standardized? Um, that's going to be a, a lot of that's going to be open for um, discussions in this in, in the legislature, but it will. I mean, it's a statewide, so it's going to be standardized. But we have to make sure we involve every single community mm-hmm. uh, in the state. So that brings in the you know the you know black and brown communities uh, of all face and all all measures, uh, API communities, LGBTQ communities, uh, tribal communities. 
Uh, and of course, you know, you know, white communities as well. We want to, you know, bring make sure everyone has input on what their issues are and what how to best deal with their communities to re, to reduce these moments of violence. Um, so that's that's what we're looking to aim. That's what we're aiming to do. So I want to ask about a very specific code in the initiative that jumped out at me, and that is related to what we're talking about here. It's Part Four, Section Two, Line C, which would require the commission tasked with implementing the law to include curricula that would cover. Imp- and this is I'm quoting here: implicit and explicit bias, cultural competency, and the historical intersection of race and policing. This, to my thinking, is huge and could be a, a potentially a real game changer. How would something like that be implemented in your mind? Um, there's that the process is, you know, when you when it lot largely deals with um, profiling interactions, the implement, implications behind um, how you deal with, you know, police certain communities. So um, like me as a, you know, grow up as a, as a, as a black man, Either I'm just a very bad driver, or or I have a unusually high record you know, rate of broken taillights, or I'm just being profiled. So right. uh, these things, these are the type of things that need to be addressed. Saying like, well, why, like, why are you, you know, why are we having these types of interactions from the start? Not just about the finish and like how some of these end them in extreme violence, but we have to address all issues in long, all communities of how. These interactions have just gone negative in all aspects, not just shooting. So for every shooting, there's hundreds of beatings and arbitrary arrests and profilings and intimidations. Um, like if you talk to people from the LGBTQ community, you've seen like the, just the intimidations and threats and beat, you know, beatings that they have suffered from just bad interactions with police. Those we don't we want to make sure those don't get overshadowed by just what we've been seeing on TV and the news by the extreme moments of shooting. So we have to address all these other aspects, you know, and how make sure these just to avoid these and make sure we solve these better. So that starts sometimes with just the initial interaction, making sure we're just not we're not profiling people from the start just to try and look for something. I've, you know, I've been I've had I've been stopped in frisk and had my car searched countless times, basically because you know like. You know, I said either I'm a bad driver or, yeah. or I just I just I just, you know, my cars malfunction, my taillights malfunction constantly or I'm getting profiled. So we want to make sure those are addressed and those things are handled equally. And I think we know the the answer to that. <laughs> uh, um, sadly, uh, was, was there a precipitating moment that moved you and others to actually start to get into action, put this on the ballot? I would imagine that the Charlie and Lyles case factored into that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we, this, this bill was drafted before, um, Charlie allows, but oh, like, okay. yeah, we, <laughs> we, we wrote, we wrote this before. It just like, it's just so happened. This is like a, that was pretty much a textbook case of what, what de-escalation could have prevented. Absolutely. And, and I should just mention for those not familiar that the Charlie and Lyles case involved the fatal shooting of a 30 year old African American woman during a confrontation with two Seattle police officers back in June of this year. I, this isn't the first time the SPD has been under scrutiny. Five years ago, the U.S. Justice Department found that the Seattle Department, uh, Seattle Police Department used excessive force too often. And then in April, a federal monitor found that uh, excessive force had turned around dramatically and that the department was in compliance. That was in April of this year, and that was previous to the Charlene Lyle shooting in June. Um, I'm wondering specifically, and we're, of course, talking about Seattle, and this is a statewide initiative, but specifically, what would I-940 do that goes beyond the federal compliance that the uh, the federal monitor signed off on? 
Um, the number one is just the expertise. I think is just the the more advanced techniques versus the the length. So you can you know if you give if you give someone forty hours of bad training, then they're going to still be bad at de-escalating. So um, we want to make sure there's a lot of mental health analysis and professionals involved in this training development. So that just to know how to deal with this, because you look at like there's with institutions that have you know, that deal with mental health patients all the time, you know, and, and you talk to these these folks, they say like just the all the instances. I mean, they never they've had they've been able to you know reduce or you know, restrain or whatever how they, they best handle these folks, and they are always going their doing their own training, always updating their training to make sure they handle these patients correctly, right. and they never shoot any either. So. Um, we want to make sure like these, some of this is passed on to our police. Um, cause I don't, you know, we don't want to believe that police want to shoot people, want to jump. You know, the thing is we want to make sure they, they have the right tools so that, that they can resort to before they ever go to that last resort of having to shoot, you know? So that's, so I think that's, you know, the number one thing is just like, we want to give more options. We, you know, what, how can they better handle it? If they say when they're spending 40 plus hours of shooting and eight hours of crisis intervention training, what do you think you're going to, this is a natural result that's going to happen. So we want to make sure that the, it's not just 40 hours of more training, it's efficient training and with the most uh, advanced up to date and ex, you know, and, and uh, ex, you know, ex, expertise driven uh, training to help best handle some of the people when they're in their worst situations. So, yeah. we, and we want to make sure it's like, it's not about handling, we don't want to, Say that like handling people with mental health problems or, or or crazy people. The thing is, we all no one goes through life without having a mental crisis at some point. So, um, so when we say mental health, like mental health is not it's not it's not uh, permanent. We you know anyone can be you know can go through something whether it's a you know a bad reaction to drugs. It could be just something overstressed. It could be you know like a right right right. Well, I and so. You know, I want to actually, speaking of that, I, I want to put a, a human face on this. Uh, there are uh, many examples of excessive force by police and sheriff's departments around the state. And as recently as Monday, a King County Sheriff's deputy pulled a gun on an unarmed motorcyclist, and that was uploaded to YouTube. Um, there are countless examples. Just for the sake of putting a human face on this, and you've talked about your own experiences getting you know stopped and frisked and having your car searched um, and it being profiled, can you give us some other examples that are kind of driving this initiative this bill originated um it's the version that's going through the house when john t williams was shot back in you know years ago i think i can't it's it's so it's you know just less than a decade ago he was shot just walking down the street um he was carving a piece of wood Mm. he's he's a well-known wood carver so a man doing his job was walking down and he gets shot within four seconds of the interaction so that is like that is the complete opposite of de-escalation and that's you know and this is a Native American man, you know, doing, you know, practicing his craft in in a city, walking, minding his own business, walk, not walking towards anybody. Right. Um, and he's deaf in one ear. So that's so there's another person who had a disability and he got shot because he didn't wasn't able to respond immediately. Yeah. Um, the question is, then there's a balance of like, does he respond immediately or does he respond too fast? Because then you're moving too fast and you get shot for that. Um, I mean, I've I've narrowly dodged that situation a couple of times in my life. I had cop, I've, I've had a gun pull on me three times in my life and two of those times were police. Um, and can you tell us about one of those times? Well, yeah, I guess the, the more, most, the closest one was, I mean, I was in college. I 
just lost the Rose Bowl, the biggest game of my life. I, I played football at Stanford University. And wow, I didn't just, know that. Wow. <laughs> so I just lost the biggest game of my life, and I'm out with my brother and a friend from high school. And we all, like, my brother just graduated from college, and my friend was at, you know, going to Grambling University. So we're all college students or former college you know, students. And we just dropped a friend off, you know, after going out and, you know, crying our sorrows away or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I'm literally standing outside. And this is actually in California, not Washington. But the thing is, it's, you know, these happen around the country. And cops pull up on us and pull the guns out on us. And, and you know, us, tell us to get on the sidewalk. And we get, so one keeps his gun drawn on us and while the other one searches us. And, and I'm, you know, I'm already in a bad mood. And, you know, I st- and I'm like, once the cop, you know, once they see they have, we have nothing on us, you know, the cop puts his gun down and I get a little mouthy. And my brother tells me, you know, he's telling me to shut up, of course. But, mm. but it's just like, you know, if, and I was, so the thing is, I probably wouldn't have been mouthy or if I wasn't in a bad mood. But like, if, like, let's say, if, you know, if they caught us in a situation where there's a, there's a, that crossroads where someone's really in a, crisis and a horrible, you know, and, go, and is already stressed for something and that catalyst of a negative interaction where your profile can put you, you know, in a, you know, where you're not going to be fully compliant, you know, like it's it just the price to pay for that is just too high. I, mm. I mean, if I was more less compliant, I could have got shot. I was compliant and I did it. The thing is, should I count, should I believe I was lucky enough, lucky to not get shot or should I just, uh, I believe I was unfortunate for that to happen in the first place that shouldn't it never should have happened in the first place that's right and 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 ultimately that's what we're talking about here with an initiative like 940 uh the training would be in place such that an officer ideally would have never pulled his gun to begin with um i want to talk about just very quickly the mechanics of getting an initiative on the ballot in washington state so you need 259,000 signatures Uh, how close are you in that process um well we just started we're about um I think we just cracked over fifty thousand. That's so, great, and, and having just started, that's great. Yeah, um, no, we're on pace. The signatures are coming in faster than we can, you know, we can count and we can also pay for. You know, we do a mixed effort of pay signature gathering and, and volunteer. Um, um, there's a one group called Not This Time is just kicking butt on, on volunteer signature gathering. Uh, they they pulled in three thousand themselves last week, and which is like, which is amazing. A lot of a lot of groups. Pledge to get 5,000, 6,000 signatures through the whole process. They get, they're getting, they're averaging about 2,000 a week right now. So they're, um, that is, you know, that's Andre Taylor's group, and they're just dedicated to get this path. You know, they they started this one. The example is when Che Taylor got shot last year. That's how their their group got started with that, and they are, you know, and they provide not only do they provide mass signatures, they also provide great counseling to other families that have suffered loss at the hands of the police. So. Um, that group has just been really amazing at, at feeling this effort and spearheading the thing. They're at every event. Um, they're, you know, just gathering, working hard, you know, working hard on a daily basis. And on the weekends, they're just, they're just killing it. Um, pardon the phrase, but it's, it's just that, they, uh, you know, it's, it's, and there's, and these other groups and there's, they're taking a the lead. These other groups that are joined on like Indivisible, um, League of Women Voters, uh, 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 Surge and Olympia. Uh, there's a, you know, we have a new de-escalate team in Wenatchee, Peace of Justice League. They're taking the, like, they're following this lead and just, you know, it's such a great example that we are building and building more momentum. So the, the, the pace is picking up even more. And we're already like, we, you know, we start a little late, but we're, you know, we're right, 
back on schedule. We're going to get ahead of schedule pretty soon. And your deadline is December. And if you get the signatures, the initiative goes to the legislature for a vote. If they reject it or don't vote on it, it will appear on the ballot in fall of 2018. Uh, And if they suggest an alternative, then both go on the ballot. Which are you ultimately hoping for? Um, I would happily love to just work myself out of a job in the legislature. Um, I think it should just make it easy for the people, um, save time, save money, pass. This could have passed. You know, they could have got rid of the, ma- the malice and the good faith clause, you know, years ago and this year. But it's just things get leveraged and to go, you know, how wash, you know, how, you know, legislature works. So we are um, looking to just, you know, get this passed as soon as possible. And I, I happily work myself out of a job. Uh, by you know by mid March or April. So, um, if it goes, but if it goes to ballot, then we let the people decide, and we we you know we think that this will pass with you know uh, by a landslide, and you know then yeah. so be it, and we'll make you know we'll, we will not forget um, what legis you know we won't forget what legislators refuse this you know refusing what the people want, and you know there's there's political consequences for let, not letting this go through. But like you know thing is we want. This is going to pass. This is going to make the community safer. And it's also going to give a sense of closure and justice for the families that have lost people because they've ne- they, they know they won't have a chance at justice or any due process uh, for the loss of their family. But they, they given that they made a difference in getting other getting getting this passed and giving other people a chance, that's going to give them some some solace and restitution. So you mentioned signature gathering, and we know that costs money, um, but it sounds like you have a, a great volunteer force in place. Uh, just very quickly, uh, how can people donate and or get involved, volunteer, all of that? Where, where, where can they check this out? Um, they can donate by going to deescalatewa.org. So that's D-E-E-S-C-A-L-A-T-E-W-A.org um, and then slash donate or slash volunteer. Um, yeah, we as we have a great volunteer team. I mean, they're gonna you know signs up. We'll get communicate. Make sure they put their correct email in, and we'll we'll reach out to you. Um, or just you know, like I said, the, the, these volunteers need support on the ground. I need to get them more materials, more signs, more petitions, more clipboards. This is the, their donation efforts go straight to the volunteers on the ground. I mean, I know it's weird because you, know, you say volunteers aren't free. They're not. I, I want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean. Because it's weird to say, you know, you know we want I want to support these volunteers as best as possible. So yeah. that's where the money goes. It goes, you know, there's a pacing together effort, too, and it goes to that as well. But primarily, like we, we want to build, build a field team, build chapters around the state that are getting involved and that are interested in the right kind of social justice for these, you know, for these uh, kind of campaigns. But we, you know, we want to support. Um, I want to be able to support these volunteers as best as possible. And, and I, I urge people to if you can't give time. Uh, give some money. Every little bit counts. Um, we like we. I, I love seeing small donations come in. You know, if you want to, you know, big donations help even more. But the thing is, uh, you know, showing that we have a broad audience and broad support of people donate. Going to deescalatewa.org/donate, um, you'll be able to enter support and give give the effort straight to the ground and get this passed. Well, Rial Johnson, thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, we're all, I know everybody listening is absolutely pulling for this. And so uh, thanks for being on the show and uh, continued good luck, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
Time now for this week's call to action. But first, like we do, let us have our dose of good news. And this week, the good news comes from, of all places, the congressional budget. Didn't expect that, did you? Well, I, I, I shouldn't oversell it because nothing has been made law yet. However, Senate committees have pushed back against many of the more egregious items in Trump's proposed budget and have voted to continue funding numerous climate change projects, including the department in the U.N. Envoy's office that oversees the Paris Climate Agreement. Wow. Also, they have voted to force Education Secretary Betsy DeVos to have to get congressional approval before she goes and strips low-income schools of funding and gives that money to charter schools. What else? Oh, they have voted to keep funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There's hope for you yet, Big Bird. They have also voted to approve funding for the National Institute of Health. And speaking of health, that very naturally leads us into this week's call to action. So remember all those times we thought we'd killed Trump care for good? Remember that dramatic thumbs down from John McCain? Well, I'm sure you do. And I'm sure you also know that the GOP is giving repeal one more shot, this time in the form of a bill called Graham-Cassidy legislation that is thought to strip anywhere from 20 to 30 million Americans of their health care coverage. I say thought to because the Senate is trying to rush this through without a score from the Congressional Budget Office. Why? Well, because after September 30th, the Republicans can no longer push through legislation with a simple majority. After that, it returns to a 60-vote majority, meaning that Trump care will finally really be dead. Unless, of course, Mitch McConnell decides to change the rules of the Senate again, which, you know. Anyway, if Graham-Cassidy goes down to defeat, as it absolutely should. It will be a major victory, one that will allow healthcare advocates to breathe something of a sigh of relief. So what can we do here in Washington? Both of our senators have committed to voting no, but the Indivisible Guide is asking that we push them further. We need to ask them to speak out forcefully. And I was happy to see that Senator Cantwell did just that today. And we need to ask them to commit to slowing down all Senate business. Call and ask them to do just that. Also, you can sign up to call fellow progressives who live in red states and ask them to call their senators and ask them to vote no on Graham Cassidy. You can learn more about all of this at TrumpCare10.org, which was created by the Indivisible Guide, and there will be a link to that on the site. We got 10 days to kill this latest and, well, let us hope, final version of Trump Care. So let's do everything we can to finish it off. And that is this week's Call to Action. With Trump's move earlier this month to rescind DACA, the status of the nearly 800,000 DACA recipients living in this country is still uncertain. We talked in depth about this a couple of shows back, but I thought it would be good to speak with a recipient here in Washington to hear a little bit about his experiences. And so with that, we welcome Kamau Shega. Kamau is originally from Kenya. He is an activist for immigrant rights. He is also a student at Whitworth University in Spokane, and he joins us now. Kamau Shega, thank you so much for being with us on the program. Thank you for having me, Stefan. So I want to start with your personal story, if we can. When did you first come to the country? How old were you? I was six years old. I I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, um, in East Africa. My dad uh, had been a member of the clergy um, and was a priest back in Kenya. 
and came to the United States um, on a student visa to continue his theological studies. And so he came, I think, like around 2000. And then we came sort of like later in 2001 um, as a family. And the way the visas work is um, there's like the main visa, so like my father, and then uh, the dependents of that visa have sort of like their own classification. And those things are attached. Um, so my mother, myself, my younger sister, our visas are attached to my father's visa. Right. And so as I understand it, because visas don't automatically make you eligible for residency, your mother had entered and won the lottery for a green card. But then after 9-11, due to a clerical error, when the INS became the Department of Homeland Security and the INS used to handle green cards, uh, your mother's visa expired and her green card wasn't recognized anymore. So what did that mean for your status in the country as a child? As a child, it means you also have no authorization. Once your visa expires, no matter how young you are, whether I think I was maybe like seven or eight years old, because this was a couple of years after we had arrived. I had arrived at six, and I think my younger sister was less than five. She must have been like three or four. You also have no authorization to be in the United States, um, because that's what it says on your visa. And um, you also can't leave and come back. So you've never been back to Kenya then? No. So at what point did you and your family decide that you should uh, apply for DACA status? Um, The policy came out in 2012, and I remember watching Obama announcing it. I was in high school at the time uh, from my living room and sort of like understanding what was going on, but not really. And it also cost, at the time, it was $465 for you to apply. Mm. Um, Now, it later, a few years later, got raised to 495 And that money is what runs the program, not taxes. It's actually the fees. And at the time, $465 is a lot of money um, sure. to spend to give a work permit to me at the time. I believe I was like a sophomore or junior in high school. And so there wasn't like a real need for me to work. And so I actually didn't apply um, then. I applied after I graduated high school found out the consequences of being undocumented meant at the time, 2013 Washington State, you could not get the state need grant. And so it was that time then I couldn't go to any of the colleges that I had been accepted to because I couldn't afford them because I couldn't pay thousands of dollars tuition out of pocket. And so I took the year off and sort of that was when I began organizing. And that's also when I began applying for um, DACA because then I did need a work permit. To work because I was neither I wasn't in high school anymore. Um, I wasn't going to um, college because um, I couldn't afford it. So I needed to work, and then it would seem like a, a good time to invest in um, getting DACA and a work permit, and also just having protection from deportation. Right. Um, well, you know, and so when you chose to do that, I'm wondering what that process was like choosing to give up your personal information, knowing that it might wind up in a situation like we're in right now where your status would be endangered because of it. Did you consider that at the time when you were giving up that information? Yeah, I think um, there was a little bit of nervousness, but there was basic trust that the information wouldn't be abused. And it's kind of insane. Like if you can think of um, whenever you have to pay your car tabs or like go to the DMV, it's not a pleasant experience <laughs> and no. people often put it off. Yeah. This was like that, except you had to document 
like your entire life. Right. When you enter the United States, um, every single address you ever lived in. Um, if I was in high school, I remember I had to, uh, you know, state the high school that I went to, have a record. So you couldn't just say, yeah, I went to this and this high school. You had to have evidence proving that. And um, for a lot of people, it's hard to fill out that application on your own. So then you need, you know, try to get lawyers. And thankfully, there's a lot of community organizations that offer free um, clinics for people to fill out their DACA, like Northwest Immigrants Right Project and 21 Progress. Um, but it was like a really insane process. I think it took me several months um, to just fill out the application. And then it took another about six to about six months after you fill out the application they then send you notifications letting you know that they've gotten your application and they tell you to go inside a department of homeland security building so that they can fingerprint you take your pictures and just have all this data on you and what was that experience like having to go into a a dhs building that must i would imagine that would be pretty unnerving to do that yeah not a not a welcoming place for immigrants um because it's like a just a it's like DMV with guns. So <laughs> over there, oh god, that's a terrible place. image, man. Yeah, it's, uh, the DMV is bad enough, and right. this is that. Except now you have homeland security agents there. So, but you get the status, and and you're approved for it. And I, I can imagine at that point you might have breathed a bit of a, a sigh of relief. But then. Just over the last few weeks, I I can imagine being very unnerved by all the things that Trump was saying during his campaign. And then uh, over the last few weeks, I can really imagine how uncertain it must have been with Trump first rescinding DACA. And now, as of the recording on September 14th, when we're talking today, it appears that there might be a deal with congressional Democrats, although that's not sure. Uh, that's right. not that's not a certainty. Uh, you are somebody who's been very involved in the fight to save DACA as an activist, but I'm sure the last few weeks have been just personally very stressful for you. Yeah, um, they definitely have been stressful, especially because for me, the announcement came. Um, he trumped out the attorney general, Jeff Beauregard Sessions III. Uh, <laughs> Did you say the, he trumped him out? I like that. Yeah. And <laughs> and this is like the day before school starts. So it brought a lot of uncertainty and um, a like large feeling of like precariousness because you just don't know what's happening day to day. And also just like a weird aspect of being in the middle. There are controversies that happen with this president like every week. But then it's weird when it's like the controversy that affects you um, and watching it from that perspective. But I think for me, you know, for a lot of people in the immigrant rights movement, um, this was something we expected. Like no one was really surprised as much as they were like, oh, it's happening now. It's something people have been dreading since he like came down from the golden escalators. Mm -hmm. And then the first things he said about immigrants were that we were criminals and rapists and maybe a few of us were good people. Then I think that was two years ago. And since that day, people have known Trump is not a good person and Trump is going to do bad things that are going to hurt immigrants. Yeah, he's uh, he's made no secret of that from the beginning. You know, the vast majority of DACA recipients, and in fact, I think when most Americans think of DACA recipients, they think of of young people who have come from Mexico and Latin American countries. You come from Kenya. Um, And in an interview that you did with Fast Company, 
You compared Trump's policies on immigration to Jim Crow laws, um, and I think that has a particular resonance because you come from Africa, and for all intents and purposes, you are an African American. But mm-hmm. talk about that the 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 assertion about uh, Trump's policies on immigration being akin to Jim Crow laws. Um, you know, it was really telling to me that it was. Attorney General Jeff Beauregard Sessions III that came out and announced the end of DACA. And he himself has become um, such a prominent figure in American political life because he so well embodies like 21st century uh, segregationism. And it really made me think of uh, the Jim Crow laws of the South because in the Jim Crow laws you also had um, a group of people who were essentially Americans, but were forced to live in the shadows. Like black people in the South during Jim Crow essentially lived in the shadows. That's, you couldn't work necessarily anywhere you wanted. You didn't, you didn't have um, protections from your employer the same way that white workers had. Right, and, and that's a similar situation with today's undocumented Undocumented workers. immigrants, yeah. is if you don't have a work permit of protection for deportation, you can't just work anywhere you want. And if you, something happens at work, wage theft, um, for example, then you don't necessarily have recourse against your boss. You're vulnerable to abuse. And what does that mean for immigrant workers now and for black workers during Jim Crow? It meant that, you know, you were exploited um, far more than um, other working people. But we also know that from Jim Crow that white citizen workers, their wages also did not fare well during Jim Crow. Um, and the only person that really benefited was um the business class that supported segregation. Right. And of course, the irony is that after Jim Crow was ended, uh, the wages of white workers started to rise as well. Exactly. And that really tells you a story about the way the economy works, is that when everybody has rights and protections and everybody is able to contribute fully, that makes life better for um, everyone else, whether you're directly affected or indirectly. And so what Sessions is really doing with DACA is 800,000 people who have work permits and protections is pushing them back into the shadows. And that isn't just going to be bad for people like DACA, like who have DACA, like myself, but it's going to be bad for U.S. citizens because um, right now when I'm able to work, I get a paycheck, I pay income tax, and that goes to public benefits for everyone, even some that I don't personally enjoy because immigrants are banned from certain public benefits. But I also spend that paycheck, right? Um, I go out and I support small businesses and I buy stuff from them. And when I buy stuff, I create demand for that small business owner um, because now there's a small business owner who has to keep up with uh, Kamau coming every Saturday and and (laughs) buying things. So you're ultimately making an economic argument. And in fact, uh, the libertarian think tank, the Cato Institute, backs you up on this. Their estimates were that some $200 billion would potentially be lost from the American economy by deporting DACA recipients. Um, So you, as I've mentioned, are an activist. You're very involved with immigrants' rights. But I'm wondering, in what other ways would you like uh, the conversation to change a little bit and to see people uh, get involved uh, around this issue? I think that for people who really care about immigrant rights uh, is to get involved with organizations and, um, you know, to have um, sort of like a routine and a commitment to it 
that is going to be sustainable for yourself because this is going to be a while. Um, Trump has announced that he's ending DACA within six months. And so there is that that short term period where we need Congress to pass a clean dream act and people need to call their members of Congress. But we also know that this Congress, the Republican Congress, is not going to pass immigration reform that would uh, resolve my parents' status or resolve the status of so many of the 11 to 12 million uh, undocumented um, immigrant Americans. And that's only going to happen if we are able to elect a new Congress and have a new uh, president that oversees the enforcement apparatus. Um, So that's one thing. And I think for people who are undocumented and maybe haven't been involved, um, you know, it's a clear signal to all undocumented immigrants that living in Trump's America means the best way to be safe is to join an organization and to be in community with other people that uh, care about you and are willing to organize on your behalf if anything happens. And also uh, they're able to share resources. What are some of those organizations? They can uh, look up Cosecha, C-O-S-E. C H A um, and join them, or go to uh, weareheretostay.org. Um, and yeah, just keep calling your members of Congress and uh, make sure they pass a clean dream act that protects DACA recipients without uh, putting other immigrants in danger. And hopefully, we'll get it done soon. Thanks for all that great information, and I will make sure that that is available for listeners on the website and on the SoundCloud page. Again, uh, Kamash Shega, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate it. And that will do it for this week's show. If you would like to learn more about the show, head over to indivisiblepodcast.org. You will find links to all the things that we talk about here. There is a searchable back catalog of shows if you missed any. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Again, it is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Hit me up, yo. Oh, and we are on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests. Riel Johnson and Kamal Shrega. Thank you to Aaron Albanese and Alex Stark for their help. And thanks as always to you for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.